Alrighty, good to be together with you. I have uh, <clears throat> mentioned before that moving film about the life story of a man named Robert Wiley, uh, otherwise known as Bob Wiley. And uh, the movie's titled, What About Bob? If you've ever really actually seen the film with uh, Bill Murray in it. But uh, I've talked about it before because I love to watch it and just laugh and enjoy uh, just uh, the, how it unfolds. Bob Wiley is, of course, if you've never seen it, it's a, it's a good laugh. It's a great vacation movie, by the way. But uh, Bob Wiley is a neurotic, phobia-filled individual who uh, can't handle the fact that his psychiatrist has gone away. And so he figures out where his psychiatrist is on vacation. And he travels to Lake Winnipesaukee uh, to be with Dr. Leo Marvin and all of his family. And of course, Dr. Leo Marvin's family enjoys meeting this patient of, of their father's and husband, and, but not Dr. Marvin. Dr. Marvin, this is absolutely wrong, Bob. You don't ever, you are violating our professional relationship. But uh, Bob begins to ingratiate himself with the family until he's driving Dr. Leo Marvin crazy. And uh, one scene, he's in their vacation home, and Dr. Marvin says, get out! And he's going, no, we won't get out. We think you're terrific. No, you, get out of my house. And out he goes, and they slam the door on him, and the family's going, Dad, why would you do that to Bob? He's such a nice guy. Dad, and, and Dr. Marvin, played by Richard Dreyfus, says, you think he's gone? You think he left? He's never gone. And he opens the door, and there's Bob Wiley just standing at the screen door waving to them, right? You know, he's never gone. Well, my sermon title this morning is Goodbye, Saul, Hello, Saul, right? And uh, you may be thinking, you got to be kidding me. He told us last week that we were finished with 1 Samuel. He spent 16 months going through that book. Last week, he, King Saul died. So why, why are we seeing him again? Hopefully, you realize we're done with Old Testament King Saul. The goodbye Saul is to him. The hello Saul is to the New Testament Saul, who we know best as the Apostle Paul, right? We're going to be beginning looking at uh, his life today. Like the Old Testament Saul, we saw last week King Saul didn't end up in the same direction that his life started. The good news is that's going to happen to Saul in the New Testament as well. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that we can open your word. I thank you that this scripture is as alive to me today as it was the very first time I ever read it. Just the, the truth. And so, Holy Spirit, we believe you're here. And we're asking you to do what I can't do. Take your word and apply it to each heart. Meet us all individually through your word, we pray today in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to see today um, Saul or Paul, and I'll go back and forth, you know, his conversion. And in the weeks that follow, we'll see Paul the evangelist, Paul the missionary, Paul the letter writer. We'll, we'll look at one of the letters that he wrote to a New Testament church. Uh, but today we want to see kind of where it all begins for him. And it's in Acts chapter 9, if you're not familiar with it. For there we read, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Jesus, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him 
to the synagogues at Damascus that if he found any belonging to the way, and that was the term that was being used for Christians, this new group that was saying that this Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, that he might uh, get them, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. <clears throat> to understand where he is at this moment, I want us to begin by seeing that Saul was feeding on holy pride. Now he thinks it's holy pride. He thinks it's his holiness. It's really more religious pride, self-pride, but it's what he's feeding on, right? Uh, at this point, Paul kind of looks at himself as someone that God would look down at and go, good job. Like, you, look, he is one of my impressive religious people. He's, he's, he's got it down. You know, he's working hard at it. And that's the way he sees himself. We know that even when he writes a letter to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, he writes about his past. And he says in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I for far more. In other words, in what I've done in, 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 in making, becoming impressive in the eyes of God, right? What does he say? He says in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. He's listing it. Boom, 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 boom. I watched a documentary, and I forget whether it was on David Foster or whether it was on Chicago, uh, the group, you know, but, but in there he talks about, yeah, the, the band Chicago, they were upset with me, but that's because I told them, I know I'm great. I've done this with this singer and this with this singer and this with this singer. I've got all these Grammys. I got all these Emmys. I'm great, and you need to listen to me. And, and it was kind of like, oh, most people don't, even if they feel that way about themselves, they don't say it, you know, a Muhammad Ali here or there, but that sense of how great I am. Well, Paul, Saul says, I know that I was great. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. I was doing it all, at least he thought. Jesus said, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, which is what Paul, Saul was, it can't be a righteousness you think you earned. It has to be the righteousness that God gives you through faith in Jesus, right? But he thinks it, and he thinks he's kind of filling up his cup, right? Verse 7 of Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me. Now, he says, as a Christian, I count them loss. But at the time, I was looking at my account and going, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, right? I did it. It is so easy to deceive ourselves with religious holy pride, right? Even somebody who began years ago saying, oh, Lord, I'm nothing. I need you. It's easy along the road to start thinking, I've become something impressive. It is so easy to deceive ourselves in religious holy pride. Look what I've accomplished. Look at my religious bank account. I was reading another article this week about you know, Americans' retirement savings and, uh, you know, a good percentage of folks that are getting near retirement and don't have any savings. And, you know, and of course, they put in there, like, this is what you should have saved in your 20s and in your 30s and your 40s. And I got to be honest, I paid as much attention to that as I did how much you should weigh based on your height, right? You know, like, I was always like, come on, that ain't realistic. I must have heavy bones or something. I don't know. But, but uh, you know, but, 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 you know, that sense of, 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 of but, but, 
what we do as human beings, we compare, right? I'm reading the article, I'm going, all right, you know, am I, am I behind most people in my age bracket with what they're saving, or am I okay? You know, like, we, and, and that's what Saul did religiously. I look at my religious bank account, look at all the things that I did. Look, look at all that I've accomplished. But it is tempting, but it's dangerous. Because when your eyes are on your goodness, you can't see God's grace. You can't see his grace. You can't see his mercy. You, know, it, you, you, you just have to be able to see that it isn't that I started out good and Jesus makes me better. It's what scripture is honest, that, that all we like sheep have gone astray. That there's none righteous, no, not one. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not going to get ourselves there, right? You know, I've said before that, that, you know, there may be a cliff, two different cliffs, and there's 100 feet between them. And then I jump, and I drop like a rock, and, I, you know, I, I, I'm down, and I get five feet. If you make it 99 feet, you're not on the way down going, I made it further than you did, right? We're, 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 we're both at the bottom, right? So my point is, you may have lived a better moral life than me, but you can't fill that cup up like he thought. And he tells us, I got excited about religious rules. When he's writing to the Galatians after his letter to the Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, in Galatians chapter 1, we read him saying what in verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. See, compared to everybody else. Uh, you know, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. What's he saying? What I got excited about, this is what Paul says, Saul says, I got excited about rules. Because when you give me rules, I can follow them. And look what I did. So I, those ancestral traditions, I got excited about rules. Now listen. Don't, you know, hear me today saying rules don't matter. You know, Dad, I don't have to go to bed when you said because uh, Pastor Vince said rules don't matter. Rules matter, right? They matter. A lot of them there to save your life, to keep you healthy. And Jesus didn't come along like some people think today and say, don't worry about any of the rules. No, he said, I came to fulfill the law. All of that law that was guiding you to God's holiness, it was to show you you weren't able to perfectly follow it. Not that you shouldn't care. I am the one who fulfills it. You have to come to faith in me. I'm the only one who was righteous that could pay the price for mankind's sin. But when you think about it, that's, that, you know, Saul would have been like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. You, you may be familiar with it, you may not be. That, that where, where Jesus says there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. And tax collectors were kind of, it was like saying there was a really lousy sinner, right? And, and the, tax, the Pharisee's sitting there going, thank you, oh God, that I'm not like this sinful tax collector. The tax collector's saying what? Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus says, one of them's going to end up with me in paradise. And it's the one who's able to see God's grace and mercy. It's the one who's able to see that, hey, I don't have this great religious bank account that I can rely upon. I need God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Saul would have been in that category, right? Uh, Jesus shares some words. They're great words in Matthew's gospel, chapter the 9, the ninth chapter. Uh, because the context is what 
Saul is talking about. Now, you may or may not know this. Saul and Jesus were pretty much the same age. They were born around the same year. They were pretty much the same age. But they never, we have no evidence that they ever, matter of fact, the evidence would seem to be they never met each other until Jesus changes Saul's life after his resurrection, which we're going to get to. Hang with me, right? But, but, my, but my point is that, that Saul was, a, he knew about Jesus. He would have been with the ones who cared about the law and the traditions. In Matthew 9 and verse 14, we read, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Right? Why aren't you guys get care, caring about the traditions, the rules? And Jesus gives them several answers of the beauty of what he has brought as the Savior. But verse 17, he says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Right? So what were there? We don't do a lot of that. I don't know if any of you have actually ever, you know, you know worked with wine skins, but, you know, it's not something we're familiar with, right? Wine skins were basically the skins of an animal, a goat or whatever, that they would turn into like a, a bottle, a, a pouch, and you would take a new wine skin, you'd pour the new wine in it, because as that wine fermented, it would expand, the wine skin would stretch, Right? And now you have an old wine skin with old fermented wine in it, and that's great. But if you dumped out the old wine and you tried to pour new wine into an old wine skin, it would break. It, was, it, it can't handle it. Now it's, it's been stretched. It's been brittle. It can't handle the new wine. And Jesus says, that's what I'm coming to tell you about. And that's the problem that Saul had with Jesus. Saul loved the old wineskins of trying to, to become righteous by following the law. And Jesus says, no, I'm bringing new wine. And that new wine is, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. That all the law was supposed to do was to point you to the fact that you are unable to build up your bank account, that you need God's grace and mercy. And Saul basically was, would, would say, my wineskins can't handle that. I can't hold that because I'm against it completely. That's not what I, you know, that's not what, what I have a taste for. I have a taste for the old wine. We were, uh, as kids, we didn't have a lot as a family, wonderful father and mother and they, they, they provided great for us, but we weren't, you know, we didn't have a, a ton, we were, but we were blessed in different ways. We were blessed that my mother's parents owned a tiny little two-bedroom bungalow. Uh, I'd tell you where it was, but once it got sold, it got torn down, and it's now a four-story, <laughs> but it was right on the bay in Avalon, you know, it, it didn't stay in the family, but a little bungalow, and we would go there, each of us got, each of the families got one week of vacation there, so that was one of our weeks. But our other week of vacation, we, we became a camping family. We learned through experience, little by little, how, uh, you know, how to make camping bearable and even enjoyable, right? You know, like just, just, you know, don't pick the site that's right in the sunshine and, you know, things like that. You know, just how to enjoy it, it, it more. And we, because of that, you ate at the campsite. Very rarely when we were on vacation would we go out to eat. But on one occasion, they took us to a restaurant. 
And you may remember, that you, you really need my dad to tell you this story, but I'm not going to call you up here, Dad. But because he, he can still feel it when he starts telling you about it. He can still feel it, how much painful it was. Because as we went to the restaurant, all of us as kids said, we want spaghetti and meatballs. And my dad was kind of like, no, I know what's going to happen. You're not going to eat it. I'm going to have all this leftover spaghetti and meatballs. No. Oh, Dad. And he gave in. We're on vacation. And he got us all spaghetti and meatballs, right? And what happened as soon as we started eating? This doesn't taste like mom's spaghetti and meatballs. And what he thought happened, and, 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 and he, he, you know, getting up from, that was a hard moment for him to get up and leave that restaurant with six kids' plates of spaghetti and meatballs, you know, barely eaten, right? You know, and, and, uh, and, and we, you know, he let us know. Like, that, that made a mark on him, right? But why? We wanted moms. We had a taste for moms. Saul would say, my taste is for feeding on my holy pride. My wineskins can't handle this new Jesus. He's a blasphemer. And we crucified him and we buried him because that's where he belongs. And that's what Saul's position would have been. Saul's wineskins couldn't handle. But Saul's feeding on holy pride led to a second thing. And that was Saul fuming against humble people. Jesus is a blasphemer. He deserves to be buried. We buried him. But now you got this group of people called the way that are saying that he rose from the dead and he was the Messiah who paid the price for sin and we need to come to him in faith. And just like we buried him, I got to bury them. And he went after them. And we, we, we read that as we look back at Acts chapter 9, right? Saul Verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Kent Hughes says this, Saul the hunter was a brutal, bloody man. His goal was nothing short of the complete extermination of the way, the Christians. Threatening and slaughter had come to be the very breath Saul breathed. He was a frightening, violent enemy. Hated the name of Jesus. If you met that Saul and you said, let me tell you about my Jesus. He said, oh yeah, let me tell you about my prison. Let me tell you about my sword. Let me tell you, like he would say, you, don't wanna, you wanna talk about Jesus? I'm gonna end you talking about Jesus. Know that, that's where he was. That's what his life was about. It, it, you know, I, I look at that and I have to stop and and challenge myself and maybe you. Look at how that can happen when you fill with religious pride. There's nothing wrong as a child of God to say my heart is broken over some of the things I see happening in our world. But it's a whole different thing when you find staring up in you this, this anger at people who are lost and don't know Jesus. This, this oh, when someone's making fun of your faith or you see them trying to shut down the gospel, and, oh man, I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. There's really no place for that in us. That's, that's the spirit of Saul, right? That's not where we're supposed to be. We'll see that further as we move along, but that's where he was. And you know, you may say, well, do we know that for sure? Luke wrote Acts. I mean, Paul might be like, I didn't hate them that much. Except where did Luke get his opinion? He got it from Saul. 
Saul told him. As a matter of fact, when Saul gives his own testimony in Acts chapter 22, he doesn't change anything. In verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting men and women into prisons. I want you to think about that. Some of you who feel like, oh, I really don't deserve to be in the body of Christ if you knew what I did before. Oh, oh really? You imagine being Saul after he comes to faith in Christ and he comes to our fellowship and he sees people whose family members he tortured and put to death. You imagine trying to live with that? That's where you really taste the forgiveness of God. What it means that he has separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, right? That, that, that Saul had to be able to leave that former life at the foot of the cross. But I'm getting ahead of myself because he ain't saved yet where we are in the sermon, right? But he's saying, this is how I lived. This is how I behaved. I was reading an article in the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. I don't know if you get that, but it's a magazine dedicated to Christians who are suffering more for their faith in Christ. And it was an article in just the December uh, issue about the church in Cuba, our brothers and sisters in Christ living in Cuba, and how, you know, one specific congregation, it was happening to more than one, but they, you know, they had these bulldozers pulled up, government bulldozers, to just destroy their church to take it down as they're, you know, you know, Castro tried to make Cuba an atheistic country, but the gospel has continued to move in different areas. But they said that day they came to our church and they're, they're bulldozers, they took down all the walls, but somehow as they did, as they were driving away, the, the, the roof didn't collapse. And so we gathered for worship and we were, still had a roof over our heads. And it's fascinating, matter of fact, when you read the article, because by the end when they're saying, how we can pray for them as the persecuted church in Cuba. They said, we are not asking for persecutions to be removed. We just want people to pray that we remain faithful to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that, that's... Mm. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who, it's real to them. Well, that's what Paul was doing to people. In Acts chapter 26, I don't think he could be any clearer with his hatred toward Christians, right? I'll even say toward us, even though we're 2,000 years later. At the time, this is the way he would have felt, right? In Acts 26 and verse 9, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities." We can see Paul's words, so you can picture it. I'm trying to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus, and they wouldn't. And I was, it made me even more furious, right? He was furiously enraged. I want you to think about the stoning of 
Stephen as one of those events, right? Because it happens just before chapter 9. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we read, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. Luke wants us to know before Saul meets Jesus, this is what was, he was experiencing. He saw Stephen give this testimony all about Israel's history, but then tell them, you have, it, it's meaningless if you don't see that Jesus was the Messiah. It's meaningless if you reject him. And in verse 56, after they begin to gnash their teeth at Stephen and come after him, we read in verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And just the crowd sees that and the crowd comes at him and they're stoning him to death. Verse 58 when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In other words, Saul's, orchestra, Saul's going, yes, he deserves it. Get him. Give me your coats. I'll hold them. Get him. He's all for it. He knows the gospel. He knows that these Christians believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was crucified for sin, that he rose again from the dead. They're these blasphemers. They don't realize he's, we killed him, he's dead, we're the righteous ones. And then he hears this in verse 59, as they're stoning Stephen. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, forgive them. You imagine the impact of that on Saul as he is listening? As you do, I want you to think about the impact you can have when you stay humble under mistreatment. We're not experiencing that. Maybe there are in a couple areas, but we're not experiencing. Nobody's, there's no crowd outside that is, wants to stone me to death for my preaching. Thank God for this great country that we live in that still has freedom of religion and the freedom to gather and worship. But the reality is you may be in, facing somebody who is very antagonistic to your faith and they just know the buttons to push and they're coming at you and they're trying to irritate you. Listen, you've got to be able to realize the impact of staying humble and not responding in, 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 with anger, Paul talk about it later when he writes to the Romans after he comes to faith in Christ. In Romans chapter 12, what does he say in verse 20? But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Saul's saying, trust me, I remember it. I remember sitting there doing everything I could to get them to blaspheme. And when they humbly were saying, Father, forgive him, it was, it was, I was furiously enraged because it was so impacting me internally. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he confronts Saul uh, in chapter, when, when Saul shares about what we're seeing in chapter 9, when he shares about it in chapter 26, 
What is it that Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, right? Saul, you know inside of you, you are in a battle. One writer says this, these goads included Stephen, who prayed for his murderers and the men and women who humbly and bravely refused to deny their Lord Jesus, facing suffering and death. In his own words, Paul says what? It made me furiously enraged. So furiously enraged that what? I went after them more. See, I want you to hear it and understand. Saul, knowing the message of the gospel, even seeing Christians who were willing to die for it, still wasn't ready. He still thought, I've just got to work harder to shut them down. And he says that, right? We, he, in, in chapter 9, and what do we see? He's on his way to Damascus. Damascus is 150 miles away from Jerusalem. That's how far he's going. And, and that's not two hours in your car. For them, that was five days, right? He, 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 he was well, 75 miles per hour, whatever. Maybe, maybe a little longer than that. I don't want you to think I'm speeding or anything. But, but you know, it, it took him five days to get there, right? To get to that place where he could arrest all of these Christians. Whew, what hatred. Saul gets permission from the high priest to go arrest the followers of Jesus. And that's where he's heading when we see a third thing. Saul face-to-face with the true high priest, Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 is comparing how the priest had to perform the same sacrifices over and over and over again. But Jesus Christ, once and for all, gave his life on the cross. And we read in verse 17 of Hebrews 2, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he wasn't just going to do sacrifices. He gave his life as a payment for our sin. Who? Jesus, the great high priest. And I think it's so fascinating that the apostle Paul, Saul, was feeding on his holy pride. He was fuming against humble people. And so he got permission from the earthly high priest to go get them. And on his way, who stops him is his heavenly high priest. His earthly high priest says, go get them. His heavenly high priest says, stop and see exactly who I am. Here he is, what do we read in verse 3? As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Here the hunter Saul has no idea that he's being hunted. He's going to kill or capture the people of the way and no idea that the way and the truth and the life is right behind him, right on his tail. He's coming for him to say, oh, do I have a surprise for you. And when you think about that moment when Saul says, who are you? And he says, 
I am Jesus. I love in John chapter 18 that only John records it, but in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest Jesus. And they say, we're here for this man Jesus. And Jesus steps forward and says, I am he. And we read that the guards, the soldiers, fall on the ground. I believe it, it, it's this, almost this transfiguration moment, this, this glimpse, this display of Jesus. When God said to Moses, what? Tell them I am sent you. Jesus says, I am he. And the power of that moment crystallizes the moment that this is the very son of God who you've come to arrest. Jesus says to Paul, I am Jesus. And, and if you could just contemplate it, because in an instant... That means to Saul, everything the Christians are saying is true. It's all true. Listen, one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the life of Saul. We'll see that more next week. But it, there have been many who, atheists who have come to Christ simply studying his life because what other explanation? He didn't hear anything new. Saul knew the gospel. He rejected the gospel. He knew all about the life of Jesus. He rejected it. it, it the only thing that possibly could change him is that what? He saw Jesus alive again. And that's exactly what happened. It's face to face, Paul tells the Corinthians, Jesus appeared to me. I never intended to be a follower of Christ. He came and got me, is what Saul says, right? And that's the way God always works. We're hunting for righteousness. I'm gonna fill up my spiritual bank account. But no, he comes after us, right? God, who is rich in mercy and love, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he comes for us, and he makes us alive together in Christ. Wow. Perhaps that's what God is wanting to do to you today. Maybe you're watching from your house, wherever you may be. Maybe you're sitting here. And for you today, it's your day. I Listen, I'm not psychic, and I'm not going to tell you, the Lord is telling me right now, there's someone here, your name begins with a T, T, and, and you know, no, none of that. You know in your heart that Jesus is saying, he's talking about you. I'm here at your heart's door. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens the door, I'll come into them and fellowship with them. Scripture says, when I did the first three things God wanted me to do, then, no, it doesn't say that. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly, me. And that's what he says to you today, dear friend. That's why we have it there, because it's his words. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other bank account. There is no other way to the Father but through my new wine. You got to throw away the old wineskins of your self-righteousness. And you got to drink my new wine of eternal life through faith in me as your Savior. You know, maybe you're here today as a Christian, and what the Lord's challenging you is humble your heart. 
You've let whatever make you bitter, irritated, always looking for somebody to attack your faith. There it is. See again, we're being persecuted. You know, it, 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 listen, it's going to come in different ways. Get your eyes off of the hatred and get your eyes on the heart. I don't care how much hatred that person is spewing in your face. Look past it. There is an empty heart that is lost and needs Jesus. Stay humble. Stay humble. Stay humble. And also, remember this. Who you've been praying for, and they've been rejecting faith in Jesus Christ. Remember this truth. Their story's not over, right? I love the song that Wayne Watson sings. He says this, a million dark alleys you can hide in. Dig a tunnel to the center of the earth. Convinced you've got nobody to confide in. Got you questioning the sum of what you're worth. People label you the black sheep of the family. Come collect upon your prodigal reward. Cush, you never can outrun or go beyond the reaches of the long arm of the Lord. No one in this world can get beyond the reaches of the long arm of the Lord. You keep praying for that friend and family member. Look at Saul. I'll never follow him. You keep praying for that person and see what God can do. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow before you, we want you to solidify your truth in our hearts. Maybe you're here today and it is your moment. Right now, between you and God, no one else has to know at this moment for you to simply say, Lord, I confess my sin. I put my faith in Jesus. I can't do enough good things. Every time I try, I stumble. But I believe today that Jesus came to be my Savior. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. Jesus, I put my faith in you. Change me. Jesus, change my life. Maybe as a Christian you want to say, oh God, I humble myself. Forgive me for starting to think that I didn't need your mercy and grace as much as people around me do today. Forgive me, Lord. Keep me humble. Help me to stay soft in the face of hostility. Lord, help us to realize that right now you are hunting after lives. There are people who are set against you and you're on your way to turn them around and to make them followers. Help us to stay excited about what you're doing in this world around us. We pray in your powerful name, amen.